1: I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, the top U.S. coronavirus hotspots are all on Indian land, but the devastating impact of COVID-19 on the American Indian community has yet to be a focus of the national conversation. At the same time, the coronavirus pandemic has highlighted other ongoing tensions around sovereignty, including the federal fight over Mashpee Wampanoag reservation lands, plus the economic hit from the shutdown of tribal casinos. All this as indigenous communities fight for the recognition that would bring resources and other much-needed support. Later in the show, what's moved thousands of white demonstrators to join the nationwide protest for George Floyd? And how do white people contribute productively to this movement?
4: If we as white people think it's exhausting to go into a space and not be sure we belong or not know exactly what to say, well, welcome to the everyday existence of our brothers and sisters of color. I think that we need to just be willing to get in there and learn and not expect to be patted on the back or given gold stars. We're really doing what we should always have been doing.
1: Two white activists share their thoughts on anti-racism. But first, joining me remotely, Jean-Luc Perit, president of the Board of Directors of the North American Indian Center of Boston, and a member of the Tunica Biloxi Tribe of Louisiana. Welcome, Jean-Luc.
5: to uh, for the um, invitation.
1: Thank you. Darren Lonefight, cultural studies scholar and a member of the three affiliated tribes in North Dakota. Hi, Darren.
2: Hi, Darren. Thank you for having me
1: and Talia Landry, Productions Manager for Mashby TV and the Mashby Wampanoag Community Development Corporation Board President.
3: Hi, Talia. Thank you, Callie, for having me today.
1: Beautiful. Thank you all for joining me. I'm going to jump right in. I want to talk about the COVID-19 and the impact on tribal peoples and tribal lands. Uh, Here's Abigail Echo-Hawk. She's the Chief Research Officer of the Seattle Indian Health Board, talking about the lack of resources available to tribal communities to fight COVID-19.
4: Tribes,
0: rural reservations and villages, urban Indian communities, we are seeing our people suffer and we are seeing our people die. And we are not getting what we need in order to serve them well. And as a result of that, some of the urban Indian programs that want to provide testing can't because they don't have access to the machines, to the testing supplies that are needed.
1: So let's unpack that, um, just how bad it is and, and the situation that you find yourselves in now. I'll start with you, Jean-Luc Perret. Why is it that there has been... Well, really, your communities have pretty much been overlooked uh, as the nation is grappling with this widespread virus.
5: Yes, and uh, it's not necessarily a, a lack of resources, but it's, again, another in a, in a long line of of promises disregarded by the United States federal government. Talking about the provisions uh, within the CARES Act, which have taken it over a month to get to tribal governments to provide health and social services for their communities. Here in the United States, American Indian and Alaska Native people uh, live in urban areas at a rate of over 70 percent. And while uh, the federal government is dragging to give resources to tribal governments, urban Indian centers, to Abigail's point, uh we are that much more impacted by the lack of resources that are allocated the uh the state of massachusetts itself the department of public health does not distinguish american indian alaska native status in reporting of COVID cases and we're doing everything that we can in order to uh, advise the state on how to accurately report our people's uh, impacts because without those numbers coming from the state, we cannot put forward a case for our urban Indian population that we are impacted and we do have a need for these resources.
1: Something that you mentioned that I just wanna raise up is that the Trump administration is sort of holding up this $3.2 billion in coronavirus relief funds this was promised to the tribes, it was supposed to, you know, go out June the 2nd, which is just this week. This this comment came out in May that they were going to hold it up. Have you heard anything? Uh, is it still being held up? And what's your sense of uh, if there will be any movement?
5: It's something that has taken over a month and. We're looking at uh, situations at Navajo Nation, which have critically high infection rates, and it's absolutely been devastating for our nations. Of course, it's a deep economic uh, impact, but trillions and trillions of dollars went into corporate entities, and the United States government, who again, has government-to-government relationships with our tribal governments, has only allocated $8 billion in that CARES Act package for over 570 federally recognized tribes. And there are other tribes who are state and non-recognized who still continue, you know, within the capacity of tribal governments Mm -hmm. that we have to be conscious of, too.
1: I want you to hold it there, uh, Jean-Luc, because I'm going to come back to that. But I just I want to focus on this this hold up on the money and and what's happening in Navajo Nation. I'm going to move over to you, Darren Lonefight, because Navajo Nation is huge. There's a piece that I was reading about this being one of the the coronavirus hotspots, and it said, if Native American tribes were counted as states, the five most infective states in the country would be all Native tribes, uh, which is fairly amazing. But what's happening uh, specifically on Navajo Nation has been devastating. Um, We talk about not having... Uh, the running water that that needs to be there so people can wash their hands, and let's just begin with the fact that a lot of the information about the coronavirus was late in getting to the population. Can you speak to that?
2: Yeah, um, so that data is coming from the American Indian Studies Center at UCLA, um, and it's you know it's looking at a per capita basis, and those tribal governments and and tribal nations are disproportionately being affected by the COVID virus, as you noted. Speaking for my own tribe here, but I think in general. To see our elders, I mean, this is a kind of senicidal virus, right? It, it, it's particularly um, dangerous for the elderly. Um, and my father talks about the elderly as our library's Alexandria. And so the loss of, of our elders is sort of built into also a loss of, you know, culture and language and history, as well as the stories and traditions that are carried on and that were passed on to our elders. So that, that ends up being uh, really putting a, f- a fairly sharp point on the, the COVID virus itself. Um, Access to healthcare facilities in Indian country is particularly poor. IHS is typically um, understaffed, overworked, and do not have enough beds for the amount of people that they're supposed to serve. And, you know, finally, uh, and, and this also speaks somewhat to Jean-Luc's point about the legacies of colonialism, Native Americans suffer from diabetes at something almost like three times the rate of white Americans and heart disease is 50 percent higher. And these are diseases that also make the COVID virus uh, worse in terms of its effects. So there's a very particular and pointed way in which the tribal nations in this country are both being neglected, specifically at a time when they most are in need of that help.
1: And I wanted to follow up, Darren Lonefight, because you're a cultural studies scholar, as we've said. Mm. And it's important to note that 800 Navajos served in the Korean War as code talkers. I mean, you know, they it, not that you have to do something to get back something as, mm-hmm. as a matter of humanity in a, in a coronavirus pandemic. However, I mean... The contribution is, is there. So when you talk about, I think about those folks and you talk about losing the elders and those experiences, I mean, that's quite a blow, a cultural blow for the United States as well as for the Native nations.
2: Absolutely. And, um, I mean, I believe the the statistic is still correct, which is that Native Americans serve in the armed services at a, high, at a higher rate than any other demographic in the country. So yep, yep. Um, service to that country is certainly long, historic, and ongoing And, uh, you know, I mean, these are commitments that the federal government has already made. So it's not as though there's uh, something being asked for other than what has already been guaranteed to the tribes and just that it be allocated uh, where it's intended to go. Or
1: to be treated fairly. Uh, Talia, I am open mouthed at this piece by ProPublica about um, the federal government giving a big contract to a former White House official, $3 million to supply masks to the Navajo hospitals. But they noted that some of them may not work. So that's <laughs> that's devastating on top of devastating. It it seems that there is a carelessness when it comes to Indigenous communities.
3: Yes, there's definitely a carelessness, especially within our situation with the National tribe during this pandemic. Our emergency preparedness team is, um, we have a great team, so we're doing what we need to to um, service our tribal families and get people tested as much as possible and make sure everybody is safe and situated. But along the way, when we're focusing on the pandemic, we get, you know, the awful news of our disestablishment of our land and trust. And it just goes to show, whether it was on purpose or not, that how the Native Americans are treated in America today.
2: I just wanted to to add on to that, too, also just the kind of the history of of um, so-called virgin soil pandemics is something that's shared across most indigenous populations in this uh, this hemisphere in general. Um, My mother, Lisa Lonefight, works for the COVID task force back home at MHA Nation. And our chairman has specifically talked about that and the sort of for us specifically the decimating effects of smallpox. And so we do take this incredibly seriously. And it certainly resonates with within our cultural memory and within our own histories. And And not to the good. Uh, you know, Correct. it's just yes, it, yeah. it's just it's just a repeat.
1: Now, let me go back to these numbers and the counting that uh, Jean-Luc, you you uh, made mention of about, you know, not having the the ethnic data being collected. So, in effect, uh, the community is kind of erased because it's not there. Yes. Uh, here's something else. Uh, the COVID-19 has actually slowed the census count in Indian country as well. So you have a double whammy here where you're you're not getting numbers on every level. So. At the end of this, if they're not the appropriate numbers that you need or others who are advocating for your communities to say, yes, we're existing. Here are the numbers. Here's here's what should be matched to resources that we may need or other connections. You don't have it because this this virus has really shut down everything.
5: Yes, the census uh, 2020 for for this iteration of the census we have had to do the double duty of educating our community members not to put any other identity. So if they are if they are black or Hispanic and American, Indian, Alaska Native, we've had to instruct our community members to put American Indian only because the way that data is being gathered currently, if you put American Indian and in anything else, then you're placed into a multicultural category. Which then artificially diminishes our population. So we're seeing uh, our numbers not being reflected in COVID reporting. Looking back at a 1930 census on my own family, um, back home in Louisiana, and all of our tribal communities at that time, we were identified as Black on the on the census. Interesting. We were not. Um, we were not gain, We did not gain federal recognition until 1980. 82, you know, of course, we talk about Jim Crow laws back in the South, we talk about uh, termination era for tribes, things that our families have gone through for the past few centuries. All of that is, is coming back and resonating today.
1: If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me remotely are Jean-Luc Perit of the North American Indian Center of Boston, cultural studies scholar Darren Lonefight, and Talia Landry of the Mashpee Wampanoag Community Development Corporation. We're discussing how the coronavirus pandemic is affecting tribal communities. Uh, Talia, I want to speak now about what you mentioned earlier and just do a little deeper dive. Uh, Before you talk about the importance of this federal government tension around uh, land, um, here is Danielle Hill. She's a Mashpee Wampanoag tribal citizen speaking about what 2020, this year, marks for her tribe.
4: 2020 actually marks the 400th anniversary some people are calling it but um, it's really not something to be celebrated given this news but it's the 400th anniversary of their arrival and since 1620 all the way until 2020 we have been battling with the king of england we have been battling with the state of massachusetts we have been battling with the federal government to prove over and over and over again that we are a Native nation.
1: So, Talia, this is important. Uh, Explain why this ongoing fight is critical for your tribe to come out on, on the winning side.
3: Yes. So in order for any Native American tribe to exercise their sovereignty, it's important to have land. And it's also, considering my tribe, the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe, land has always been, as it is to any Native American tribe, important to us. We had to give up a lot of our traditions, our culture, our language, in order to even stay on this land. And it's important to us to be looked at as being a sovereign nation, because that's what we are. Um, We've been here for this long, and we still exist, and I think, um, to touch on what Danielle was saying, that we keep on fighting and fighting, because what we have seen as the trend is, it seems like the people that we are fighting against, their motive is to essentially wipe us out so to prove that the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe does not exist anymore it's very devastating and it's a fight that our ancestors have had since the first colonizers and settlers came over cuz like i said we had to fight to stay on our land we had to give up certain things to stay on our land and in order to do so we had to you know fall under the jurisdiction of england at the time you know and the foundations of what america is today we had to succumb to that we had to follow their advice and certain things like that. So that's why it's very absurd and um, ironic that we're at this place right now where we are losing our land based off of the fact that they are trying to say that we weren't under this federal jurisdiction, that we do not exist, and that we just simply do not have the right to exercise our sovereignty over land. They, The federal government is saying that, yes, you you are a sovereign nation, yet you are not Indian enough to have land to exercise that sovereignty. So we're at a hard spot right now. And um, it's, it's, in order for us to, um, like I said, exercise our sovereignty, we need to have this land. We're at risk of losing our children's school, and we're at risk of losing our housing project for low-income families. We're at risk of losing a lot of federal dollars that help us service our tribal members, so we are sovereign. And we're also at risk of losing our opportunity of further economic development that we initiated um, in the beginning with the casino in order for us to not have to look to the government for you know, um, money to service our members.
1: Thank you, Talia. Um, Darren Lonefight. a lot of people struggle around what sovereignty really means in this in this moment and why why you all would be mad. I mean, one of the reasons is that the government has just changed the rules. So let's start there. And then you pick up.
2: Well, sure. I mean, sovereignty is self-determination. It's the right of a, of a people to determine the trajectory of their nation. Um, it's, I think, you know, it's, it's both sometimes confusing in terms of the, uh, how the term is used and deployed, but I think, you know, deep down, we sort of all understand the basic idea of, um, the right to have a self-determined future and land that's placed in federal trust is sort of a, uh, I mean, a compromise would be a really kind way of putting it, um, to sort of figure out a way to give or to, to recognize the tribal sovereignty of tribal nations. Um, within, as, as um, was noted by Talia, the kind of jurisdiction, more broadly speaking, of the United States government. And so when it's placed into trust, that is the land over which a tribal nation can exert its authority. And when it's taken out of trust, it's functionally denationalized. So it'd be a bit like saying we're going to, we're denationalizing a part of Canada, and we're just, we're going to revert it to the United States. It's, it's a fairly dramatic act. It's only happened twice uh, recently, both under the Trump administration. And before that, it hadn't happened since the termination era, which was about 10 years or so, starting in 1953, and was largely a sort of attempt at eradication through assimilation. And it was organized around a large policy initiative that had to do with uh, moving uh, Native people from their tribal communities into urban locales. Um, And it also had to do with unrecognizing over 15,000 Native people, denationalizing over almost a million and a half acres of land, as well as unrecognizing the sovereign status of over 100 different tribes. And under Trump's, uh, the Trump administration's current interpretation of the law, this could potentially place other tribes at risk for the same thing. So this is a fairly serious and kind of devastating move on the Trump administration's part.
1: And you used a, you know, that has happened under the Trump administration, Darren Lone fight, but Mm Jean-Luc Perit, where are you in the legal back and forth around this? Uh, Just in the middle of it? Or is there, how much more is there to come before some decision is rendered about this?
5: What's what's happening with the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe is absolutely an existential crisis, but it is one of the many fronts that this agenda has been carried over the past few years. Here in Massachusetts, the chubunna nipmuc tribe is uh, seeking to intervene in a lawsuit between City of Boston and City of Quincy over the protection of graves on Long Island that date back to King Philip's War. In my own home state of Louisiana, we're seeing the state-recognized uh, tribe, uh, the Ile-de-Jean-Charles Band of Biloxi Submitting comments to the United Nations over the United States' inaction on climate change, which has resulted in the loss of ninety-eight percent of their land since 1955 due to coastal erosion and rising sea levels.
1: But is this a fight you can win in the courts? I mean, where—that's what I'm trying to get to. Where, where, where is the the fight right now?
5: It, the, the the fight is all over. It, it is in all uh, levels and all branches of governments. It's not uh, merely uh, the courts, but we're talking about advocacy on the federal level with legislation Mm. because the United States has a government to government relationship with tribes that does not begin and end merely with the federal government it goes all the way down to city councils that need to acknowledge that they are on traditional indigenous territory no matter where they are so it's a comprehensive fight but there is conflict within the own government because there is a power struggle between the executive branch and the legislative branch and the judicial branch. So we're seeing a lot of conflict within the, the political system in the United States, but that is impacting how they are regarding and honoring the original promises with the tribes.
2: Got it. And I would also say, I mean, Trump has historically had a so- somewhat adversarial relationship with tribes, uh, specifically because of his gaming. Interests yes, from the beginning, from the very beginning. Yes, and, you yes. know, and certainly, um, you know, uh, ally, Trump allies have been representing lobbying groups who are representing uh, nearby Rhode Island casinos that are, are attempting to head off competition. I mean, and so this is a this is a really egregious act done for what it seems to me fairly crass reasons
1: and i should point out because i'm i'm transitioning to the casinos issue and the impact that the coronavirus uh, pandemic has had on the ability of tribes to operate casinos because everybody had to shut down so way back when not president trump he was just a regular citizen was in a fight about trying to take over a property that was rightly uh, belonging to tribes so for a casino. So he, he was very angry that he was not able to get control of that property and that casino. But in this moment, in this coronavirus moment, what we're seeing is that the economic backbone, Talia, of, of so many tribes, which comes from the receipts from the casinos, uh, has been taken away because they've been shut down. And I noted that in California, a couple of the Indian casinos defied the governor's order to stay at home recently and started to reopen. And they said in doing that, hey, by the way, we can make the decision because it's a sovereign decision because these are our casinos on our land. Uh, Talia, respond to what's been lost uh, economically, the hit that has been taken by by tribes because of the lack of this income?
3: Oh, it's a huge hit like any other um, business, you know, um, but especially for the tribes that rely um, specifically on casinos and just – speaking from the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe stance, obviously our land and trust situation is giving us some difficulties with the casino. But as my position as the president on the Community Development Corporation, within our other businesses that we're trying to stay afloat, it's hard to look for other resources when you have limited around you and you kind of put all of your eggs in one basket, as we say. And This is how our sovereign nation survives. This is how we service our tribal citizens and for, you know, COVID nineteen to happen, it's literally stopping our services that we could be giving to citizens. And the way that the federal government keeps on pushing forward, what I'm talking about with the United States, it's stopping tribal nations to push forward. Hmm. You know, in California, they do have a point. They are a sovereign nation, and they do have the right to make their own decisions on their land regarding their businesses.
1: Uh, Darren Lundfite?
2: Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's important to recognize that that uh, tribal gaming is an important source of revenue for most tribal nations, and it also provides a lot of jobs. I mean, we of course run into the same problem, which is the very often jobs that are going to create the most potential exposure to the COVID virus are often jobs such as working in a casino or so forth, where people may not feel necessarily like they have the option not to take it if the casino is open. So that problem more broadly that has been attending businesses reopening, I think is still present. But Um, In terms of the the right to open the casinos, um, the state governor doesn't really, their opinion can be noted, of course, but uh, there's no jurisdiction there over the the, the sovereignty of the tribal nations when they decide, Um, for instance, whether or not they want to put medical checkpoints um, at the border, as they did in South Dakota, to see where people are going and to see when they're planning on coming back while they're on tribal land. And finally, I I just want to
1: get a comment uh, uh, from you all about uh, the protests going on around the country, particularly uh, in Minneapolis, where George Floyd um, was killed. Um, There are uh, tribes there, and they have joined in the protests, along with a lot of African-Americans and others. But they've also been hurt by some of the looting that took place, not by the protesters, I have to emphasize, but by those who would um, want to upend what the marching is all about. Um, Darren Lonefight, do you have a comment about that?
2: Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, obviously, I stand in solidarity with the protesters as well. Um, Native people are the only racial group that's targeted for police violence at rates that are equal to and sometimes higher than African Americans in this country. And so certainly, um, the specific circumstances also resonate, I think, for indigenous peoples um, in this country. And I also think that, you know, Standing Rock being the most recent example, but going back through time, militarized police forces standing in opposition to tribal and indigenous interests is something um, that uh, we're unfortunately familiar with, but that when we see, I think typically um, uh, we recognize alliances there. And a lot of youth movements in the 60s, for instance, uh, you know, the American Indian movement was started in Minneapolis, and a lot of these were initially started as a means to uh, try to curb or curtail police brutality. So it was a it was an observation and report uh, sort of system, following on other youth and power movements in California and so forth. So there's there's certainly a lot of solidarity for me, and I think that there's a lot of solidarity around Indian Country for Black Lives Matter as well as for this particular protest.
3: Talia. Yeah, just to piggyback on that, within my tribe and all of indigenous communities, we are standing hand in hand with our fellow brothers and sisters of color, because this is a fight that we've all experienced, and not to take any recognition away from their fight, but it's something that, that like um, we were saying before, is that we've witnessed and have been a part of for so long that it's all of our fight, it's any racist fight and the looting and everything, that's unfortunate, but the message is still there of what needs to stop and the murdering and police brutality and all of it, it, profiling, it needs to stop. And um, the Indigenous communities are, I believe, are feeling this very deep and it's sparking some intergenerational trauma that I think we all have to deal with within our circumstances with the American history. So at least the Ma- I can speak for the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe and saying we are standing hand in hand and we are taking our fight public and we are um, trying to get as much support for this movement as other organizations are doing as well.
5: Sean Luke, I've got 30 seconds for you to wrap it up. Natives for Black Lives Matter is solidarity because uh, we are standing with our blood in our kin. Mm. We, have, we reserve the right to determine our own membership. We have uh, uh, indigenous people who are black. And we are suffering police killing, three times that of our white peers. And um, yeah, it's, we're, we're absolutely on high alert. All urban Indian organizations, McGitsey Communications burned down in Minneapolis. And those who would sow the seeds of division are targeting our urban Indian populations. But we still show up. We're still doing the work and we're still in solidarity.
1: I thank you all for this great discussion. We'll have to get together again because there's much more to talk about, as I know all of you know. But in this moment, thank you for joining me.
5: Thank you, Kelly.
1: Thank you so much. Jean-Luc Perit is president of the board of directors of the North American Indian Center of Boston and a member of the Tunica Biloxi Tribe of Louisiana. Darren Lonefight, cultural studies scholar and a member of the three affiliated tribes in North Dakota. And Talia Landry, productions manager for Mashpee TV and the Mashpee Wampanoag Community Development Corporation board president. Coming up, demonstrators across the country have taken to the streets to protest George Floyd's death at the hands of Minneapolis police. Notably, the overwhelmingly multiracial crowds have included significant numbers of white people. Some moved to act for the first time. What are the stages of becoming a white anti-racist, and can white privilege get in the way? That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanya. That's Creole for something extra. Anti-racism protests have spread to all 50 states and across the world since George Floyd died at the hands of a Minneapolis police officer last month. Floyd's death followed several recent high-profile acts of racism committed against Black people. White anti-racists say there is a role for white people who want to be a part of this demand for justice, and it starts with a clear understanding of how to use white privilege as a force for change. Joining me remotely, Debbie Irving, racial justice educator and author of Waking Up White and Finding Myself in the Story of Race. Welcome, Debbie.
4: Thanks for having me on.
1: Glad to have you. Also with me, Dr. Jacqueline Battalora, attorney and professor of sociology at St. Xavier University, Chicago, author of Birth of a White Nation The Invention of White People and Its Relevance Today, and a former Chicago police officer. Hi, Professor.
0: Hello. Thank you for having me as well.
1: I'm glad to have you both. Uh, Let me jump right in. I'd like you to listen to something. This is uh, local coverage of uh, white Massachusetts protesters from this past week. The stuff that's happening in all over America is making me feel sad because people are different.
0: INTERESTING to hear it coming from a white woman I think it varies based on your personal experience but I think everyone is outraged at the fact that these injustices have happened for hundreds of years and continue to happen in the year 2020. I think it's good that, that every neighborhood, every community finds a way to get out here do something just say
1: something. We may, we may not know you know some big thing to do but at least get out here and show our faces and our support. So I wanted you to hear that because um, many people have noted about the racial makeup of the protests all over the world. Um, They're multiracial, we should say, but there are large numbers of white people, mostly young. And my first question to both of you is, were you surprised by the large numbers of mostly young white people um, that they turned out to to protest side by side with black young people talking about actually white supremacy? Debbie. Debbie.
4: You know, I wasn't surprised because we've been seeing this, uh, beginning with the death of Trayvon Martin, the formation of Black Lives Matter, and then, and then Surge, you know, the showing up for racial justice, which is the group that kind of holds white people through this process. And I feel like anytime there is a highly visible uh, racist upset, I do see white people showing up. And that's been increasingly happening. Um, so I did go to Boston's uh, rally. And I wasn't surprised. It was, it was many more white people than I'd seen before. I personally had a clue it was coming because my phone and my text and have been buzzing and beeping off the hook. Everyone from you know, Aunt Betty to WGBH wanting an interview. White people are crawling out of the woodwork saying, you know, tell me what to do.
1: Hmm. Uh, Professor Battalora, were you surprised? Not at
0: all. It's the accumulative effect of some success with regard to to research and studies and publications that have been focusing on whiteness and everyday white supremacy, like Debbie Irving's book, um, my work, Robin DiAngelo, the list keeps going on. Um, And I see that in my classrooms, the, the young people um, who are reading these texts and engaging with the concepts and grappling with, with racism and the history of this nation. So I'm, I'm not at all surprised, I can tell you here in Chicago at, at the rallies that I've attended, that not just young, but significant numbers of young white people have been leading them in the ways that Debbie referenced through Black Lives Matter, um, Surge, and, and many other groups. So I, I wasn't surprised. It was more of a continuation of the crowds at those particular events over the course of a number of years at this point.
1: Why was this incident such a motivating factor? As I mentioned, this came after recent events like Ahmad Arbery shooting and Amy Cooper calling the cops on Chris Cooper in Central Park. And yes, there was national response, but nothing like this. So Professor, why, what was about this incident that made people say, all right, okay, I have to say something or, or stand up?
0: I think there's a couple things going on. Um, one of the things that I think is really significant and I don't think we've really had a chance to explore it yet, is that we are at home amidst a global pandemic. Hmm. And, and the beauty of that, I mean, COVID-19 is awful, but the beauty of being um, at home is that we are to some extent off the treadmill Right where I, I think we are kept, um, the the arrangement of our society of work in this country for so many people is such that we are kept like like a gerbil on a treadmill, just spinning, 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 and we we don't even get to stop and see what the heck we're contributing to, <laughs> how we are a part of the systems and structures that are um, so problematic and are being revealed as fundamentally racist in this particular moment. So I I think the moment has allowed more people to to just stop and actually look. Uh, So I think that's one. And and the other, I think, is just the accumulative mass of bodies of Black men and women, and and Indigenous people, and people of color, and people on the margins. And the two together um, have just reached a critical mass.
1: Debbie Irving, do you agree?
4: I agree. And I would actually add a couple more things. I think the COVID piece is huge that Jackie's talking about. And there's an element of it. I just wonder if people are um, in a little bit of a state of grief or maybe a lot of state of grief in the way their lives have suddenly changed and the way their lives feel so unpredictable. And I think that when our psyches get a little bit unstable, we might be able to take something in uh, feel another person's humanity a little more deeply. Uh, and the, I had a cousin call me and she said, this was so different for me because um, I watched that video and there's no way that guy was doing anything wrong. And of course, you know, the implication is that other times there's been a question in some white people's heads, well, he was running away. Well, maybe he did rob a store. Well, he wasn't an angel. You know, there are all these outs and there was just no out. There's no way anyone could watch that video and not see the energy of sadism at play and the three onlooking cops sitting there doing nothing. And so, you know, I think those uh, with what Jackie said and, you know, all of that, and there's probably more in the mix that we haven't made meaning of there was at this time is different.
1: Hmm. All right. Now, so you're saying this time is different. But for some black people and other people of color, they're thinking, OK, we've been here before. Um, there's been a big rush to, you know, be vocal about support and then people disappear or they really don't get it. And they come back around. I, I'm going to refer to you, Debbie, because you said your phone's been buzzing off the hook. Well, guess what? A whole bunch of black people have had phones buzzing off the hook, too. And I a lot of them are responding as Lizzo did. She's the Grammy Award winning singer. And she posted this to her Instagram this week. Black people, this is your daily reminder that it is not your job to educate people on racism or white privilege. It is exhausting. And if they don't see it or believe it by now, they don't want to. There are Googles and there are books and they can do that for themselves. White people, this is your daily reminder that as long as you stay silent, you are a part of the problem. I know you're not racist, but you have to be more than that. You have to be anti-racist. Professor Batalora, respond to that. I think it's fantastic. Bravo, Lizzo. I was listening to Jimmy Kimmel, the late night host the other night, and I'm directing this to you, Professor Battalora because your book, Birth of a White Nation, The Invention of White People and Its Relevance Today, is really is one that we can look to for historical context. He was defining and quoting somebody else talking about white privilege, and he said This was the best definition for him that he'd ever heard, which was, it does not mean that my life as a white person can't be hard, but because I am white, it's not harder. And he said, I hope that people will take that and realize, oh, doesn't mean I'm rich or doesn't mean, you know, people gave me something. It just means that there's some way cleared for me. That means that I am not so much at risk for having a knee on my neck uh, in the middle of the day.
3: That
0: is exactly correct. I I think that's a really, what what I like to say is, whatever struggles one has as as a person who's seen as white, whatever they are, you could be disabled, you can identify as lesbian or transgendered, um, poor, you know, pile it on, uh, be be of a non-Christian denomination, but you're white, um, you still get things For for the whiteness component, the racial component. Does it mean life isn't hard? Of course not. But now imagine that same person with all of those disadvantages is Black. Life just got harder.
1: How should white people be using the privilege that that comes to them um, automatically, Debbie Irving?
4: Well, I think, you know, white silence is an incredibly violent approach. A lot of times I go into institutions and they say, well, we can't say or do that. That's political. And I always say it's just as political to say or do nothing. And so I think starting to speak up, white people are terrified of being called to task by their white peers for saying, oh, my God, you're like on this race bent now. It's okay, be courageous, speak up. And when you speak up, it's important, I think, to share what you're learning. It's important not to come off as a know-it-all suddenly. It's like a smoker who quit smoking and suddenly tries to convert everybody. But when we share what we're learning, we can do it in a way that we model what it's like to um, come at this issue with humility and a desire to learn and a desire to do better. And I think there's so much people can do. I mean, start to follow, for instance, the Movement for Black Lives, for Surge, Learn, be prepared to learn. And there's, there are short term strategies and there are long term strategies. Right now, uh, we're talking very specifically about police brutality. Uh, you know, the four officers involved in, in George Floyd's death have been charged. That's good. We're still talking about police reform, which is a huge issue. Longer term, beyond that, a knee on a neck. Exists in every sector, and I mean that metaphorically, exists in every sector of our society. It's in the healthcare system, the education system, food supply, transportation, lending, housing. Uh, There is no part of our society that it doesn't touch. And so, you know, welcome new white people, and I hope you'll stay around. It's um, a lifelong commitment, and I think it's one that benefits everyone, white people included.
1: Professor Batalora, you were once a Chicago police officer. So I wonder if you have an even more unique uh, take on this particular moment in time.
0: Well, <laughs> I, I definitely have um, some thoughts and ideas about reform directed specifically at law enforcement and also at Fraternal Order of Police, you know, the unions. I think they, they have a goal of representing their police officers as laborers, ensuring due process, ensuring basic workers' rights. And unfortunately, I think most of the police, Fraternal Order of Police unions are going about the challenges of this moment all wrong. (laughs) Because a good way, I think, to approach the challenges that are being exposed, the racial bias, the internalized white supremacy that's being exposed, is to make that commitment to your workers. In order to be a police officer and do their job to serve the community, you need to know something about implicit bias. You need to understand the workings of uh, whiteness, of institutionalized white supremacy. None of us, no one is not impacted by it. It's in the pores, in the fundamental foundations of every institution that Debbie just articulated, lending, law, healthcare, and on and on and on. And, And so I think if they begin in a different place of how best to serve police officers, then we could start moving in a really constructive way. Um, and, and it it just, it's a different starting point for how to address this. Instead of just defending, defending, I, I'm not suggesting that they lose due process at all, but I am suggesting they move to a different point of how to um, best serve their members. So, that, so that's, I, I have lots more uh, to say. I did mm-hmm. want to add um, one thing, if I might, about, um, white people asking, what can I do in this moment? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think a, a really important thing is to, to pose the question to my fellow white people to please consider this. Do, do some answers to that question come up for you when you imagine your child, your sister, your brother, your parent, being killed by law enforcement during a police interaction like George Floyd, while asleep like Breonna Taylor, or you know, simply while jogging through a neighborhood as Ahmaud Arbery. When those incidents, when you imagine them as your child, your family member, your parent, do you have ideas?
1: I'm Callie Crossley. You're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. My guests are Debbie Irving, racial justice educator and writer, and Jacqueline Batalora, professor of sociology at St. Xavier University in Chicago and a former Chicago police officer. We're discussing anti-racism and white privilege in the context of the protests about George Floyd's death. Um, you two have been out there in this space doing this work and and talking about these very hard issues as white people, that's what you are. Um, but when some new to the process, as you as you mentioned, Debbie, white people uh, enter into it, they get slapped back by by others. And it's, it's harsh. And I wanted to get some word from you about how they should handle it. But first, listen to this caller. Uh, this is Lee. She called in from Westboro, Massachusetts, to our midday program, Boston Public Radio, talking about her granddaughter's experience protesting.
4: I have a very courageous granddaughter who's 12 years old. She got adamant about she's got to go down
3: there on the Rotary and be there, and she has a Black Lives Matter poster. But I'm surprised there's a significant number of people going around the Rotary yelling at her. And the most telling, I think, of this depth of racism was this morning when a person yelled at her, you're white, go home.
0: And it was a white person that yelled that. But um, she came home yesterday realizing that it's very tiring being out there protesting
1: its not mm. fun. It's a big job. I'd love to get your response, Debbie Irving.
4: Well, I, you know, I personally haven't seen any of that uh, this time around, and I and i know it exists. Of course it's exhausting. It's its exhausting, and if, if we as white people think it's exhausting to go into a space and not, not be sure we belong or not know exactly what to say, well, welcome to the everyday existence of our brothers and sisters of color. I mean, that is what people live every day. And I, I think that we need to just be willing to get in there and learn and not expect to be had it on the back or given gold stars. We're really doing what we should always have been doing, which is fighting for that democratic life, liberty and justice ideal that we were all spoon fed from the beginning. And some of us, me at age 48, that was the age I started waking up to the fact that that wasn't true, and so it is. It is hard, and I would say it gets. It gets better.
0: Dr. Bellura, how how I would respond, perhaps if I were the uh, white protester being spoken to in that way by another white person, um, I, I would want to articulate back that I see George Floyd as my brother. I see him as my people. So I'm going to be here.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: I'm going to cry for him, and I'm going to scream for him, and I'm going to scream for the lives of all African Americans, of all people of color, because I see them, I feel them, um, or I'm learning to, anyway, through this process of of being aware of whiteness as, as my people.
1: There are a number of people who are saying that this is a tipping point, that what we've seen uh, in terms of the makeup of the protests, uh, the kind of assertiveness that some people have taken who are white and who may be new to this or who may have uh, been a part of this all along, that this is going to move this reform, this new look at everything in a different way. But others are are not so sure that that's going to happen. I just wanted to play. This is Robin DiAngelo, the author of White Fragility. She was on the podcast Cape Up with Jonathan Capehart this week, and she was a little dubious.
4: I actually don't think that most white people care about racial injustice. I really don't. If you, if you show a video that's very, very extreme, it might stir some feelings. The only difference is that now we can videotape and document this and prove that it, that it is happening. At the same time, as a white person, I cannot succumb to hopelessness. That will
1: only serve me and the racist project. Well, what do you think, uh, Debbie Irving? Tipping point?
4: Yeah, a tipping point. You know, I don't think anybody knows that yet. I, I do worry that once the fervor of this moment dies down, uh, you know, the comfort that comes with being white is pretty seductive. And uh, what I am saying to people who I'm engaging with on, on webcasts and Facebook Live events, I'm doing is I'm saying, put yourself in a corner. Tell people right now what you're making a commitment to and then go on social media or tell your family and, and then stick to that commitment. You know, make a year long commitment to do something, whatever that something is going to be, uh, because it is. Uh, It is hard work. It's also, I would say for white people listening, you know, it's human development work. Like that that young girl who's 12 years old, who got a taste of uh, what it feels like to not feel like you belong. You know, that requires building some resilience and some real emotional capacity to be in and out of spaces and not always feel like you belong. Emotional resilience is a really good skill to have. Being able to think about complex issues is a great skill to have. Being able to have the skills to navigate a difficult conversation, those are good skills to have. So there's a lot in it uh, for us, and I, I hope people will stick around, and I wouldn't be willing to bet my life on it.
1: Professor
0: Laura, Yes, well, I, I guess what I could contribute to what um, Debbie has already said, and, and I really um, completely agree with everything that she has said, Um, What I guess what what I could add is that when you look at uh, U.S. history, um, there there aren't the pieces that suggest really a tipping point yet, because if we look back at um, events that occurred during the Civil Rights Movement, for example, it, it took white people to be the ones dying for people to express the level of outrage that was required in this country. Um, for change to occur. And, you know, in 1964, Cheney, Schwerner, and Goodman, two white, one African-American, went missing. Black people were going missing all the time when two white people, Jewish but still white, went missing. Media was all over it. The FBI was called. The National Guard was called. Federal resources were deployed. None of that occurred for the thousands of black people who died at the hands of white racists in the South. But when white people Um, because their lives in this nation have always mattered. When they go missing, things change.
1: What is the one thing that you want people listening to this conversation, particularly white people, to take away um, from understanding the meaning of this moment and perhaps a role that they could play?
4: You know, I think my advice in this moment is if you are just learning that the country that you live in is not the country that you were taught in your history books and your movies and your novels, and through your family stories that you live in. It's a lot. And it takes a while to metabolize that and uh, settle in and prepare to learn. And there are so many organizations to follow. You know, as Lizzo said, there are books and you can Google. So there's no shortage. Keep at it. Keep at it.
1: Dr.
0: Laura. I I guess I would add something that I heard Robin DiAngelo say in an interview this last week, Um, and she just reminded us that white people have to know how to give an answer to the question, what does it mean to be white? And so before I answer that, I'd like to alert listeners to a couple things. Pay attention to whether um, my response to that question aligns with your knowledge of U.S. history, law, and policy. And second whether it evokes calm inside you or defensiveness and uncertainty. So for me, what it means to be white, it means that as a matter of founding law, I was identified as American, as a citizen, as deserving of all the rights and benefits and takings from people of color that the government thereafter pursued. And every single institution um, grown out of this nation, lending, law, healthcare, education, housing, every one of them was built on a foundation that preferenced, that had my racial group in mind when it was put together and as each has grown and fostered to this very moment.
1: Mm. I want to add that we have lists of resources that we're going to add to the story on the web so that people can begin their search if they they want to um, with us with some concrete information. And my last uh, question for you two is, when did you I mean, Debbie, the name of your book is Waking Up White and Finding Myself in the Story of Race. But when was your light bulb moment?
4: Mine was in a graduate school course when I was 48, that was 12 or 13 years ago, and it was a very different time. I started my course just as President Barack Obama was being sworn into office. And so some people were saying it was post-racial. Finally, the United States, and the more that class went on and the more I learned, the more panic-stricken I got because the more I realized that we were nowhere near post-racial. But that's what it took, a graduate school course to wake me up. I'm not sure if I would if I had not landed in that mandatory course designed by a black woman.
1: Hmm. Dr. Badlora, for you? Sure.
0: Mine um, occurred while I was, in, I was in graduate school at Northwestern, and I had come home, and a handful of white people had been killed on the Long Island train on that day. And I, I sat there watching and I was I was so sad and I was so upset and I, I couldn't help but worry about kids who would never see a parent again and parents who would never see a child again. And I was very upset. And then two days later, well I came home and turned on CNN and on that day, three African-American people um, had been killed and I got up and made dinner. And while I was making dinner, for the very first time in my life, I realized that I had no empathy, none. I I wasn't wondering about their children, I had no tears in my eyes. And the crazy thing to me about that moment is that had you asked me 30 seconds before that awareness or even a second before that awareness, if I cared deeply about um, persons of African descent and people of color generally, First of all, I would have been offended by the question and, and I, would have, um, I would have answered affirmatively, of course I do. And I would have believed it. Hmm. But at that moment, everything changed for me. I mean, I began a process, but that was a fundamental switch for me is realizing that um, I had no empathy. Um, it took me two decades of research and work to realize what did that to me. I knew I wasn't born that way. And my answer today as to what did that to me, what made me that way, because I wasn't born without that empathy, um, it's whiteness. Whiteness did that to me.
1: Well, I thank you both for sharing some very personal insight and uh, looking long-term on what this moment may mean. And I appreciate your joining me.
0: It was an honor and a privilege, thank you. Thank you so much.
1: Debbie Irving is a racial justice educator and author of Waking Up White and Finding Myself in the Story of Race, Dr. Jacqueline Battalora, attorney and professor of sociology at St. Xavier University, Chicago, author of Birth of a White Nation, The Invention of White People and Its Relevance Today, and a former Chicago police officer. Well, that's it for this week's show. Find us on the web and wherever you get your podcasts. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of WGBH, produced by Hannah Ubelie and engineered by Dave Goodman. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening.